Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Uh, this is Pierre Mitchell. Um, I'm the Chief Research Officer at Spend Matters, and I am joined, as usual, on our monthly podcast on this edition, uh, September edition, of Spend Friends with my host, uh, Bill Michaels. Um, as you uh, may know, this is a monthly webcast and podcast that we do in collaboration with um, SIPS and Spend Matters. So I'd like to welcome you all. And without further ado, let's get to today's uh, agenda. And um, our special guest today is Lisa Reisman. She is our CEO of Metal Miner, which is actually one uh, a sister organization to uh, Spend Matters as part of Azul uh, Partners. But it's um, we invited her because her insights are really going to be invaluable today um, for sharing some insights on what's going on, not just in the metals market, but also in the um, commodities uh, in general. So uh, Bill, you want to just say hi here and we'll kind of get, go we'll introduce hi. Lisa and have her say hi and we'll get into it. Hi, Pierre. Happy to be here. All right. All right. Well, Lisa, welcome. Um, I am thrilled to actually have you on um, this this podcast with us. We, we interact so much behind the scenes, um, but actually having you as a, um, a subject matter expert here, I'm just really, really thrilled to have you just based on your experience in, in, in metal. So maybe just uh, just give a quick little background on yourself and say hi. Yep, thanks Pierre Bill and Bill. It's a pleasure to join you both uh, today. My background, I have a, uh, an aluminum trading background, buying and selling physicals, aluminum semi-finished products. Have some great war stories, which we won't share today. Um, but I do have a few of those and then spent uh, a few years in Big Five Consulting. Uh, my most recent company that I worked for was Deloitte Consulting and primarily working with manufacturers and helping them reduce direct material costs. And as much as I've tried to get out of the metals industry, I've decided I might as well just make a career out of it. So here I am. And I'm really excited about some of the things that, that we're doing at Metal Miner and some of the business issues that we help our clients um, hopefully work through. It's definitely been a very tumultuous year, to say the least. <laughs> right. Well, that's where we want to pick your brain on that to try to help you uh, sift, you know, sift through the noise and um, get some uh, order, order out of chaos here. So um, just for everybody that is uh, attending, if you have any questions, just do use the, uh, the, the Q&A widget uh, with Zoom. And um, we will uh, collect those and try to get your questions answered. Um, but uh, with that's about all of the housekeeping that we really have. So um, without further ado, let's kind of get into um, a little bit of our uh, discussion here. So I guess the first thing, Lisa, I'll kind of kick it off. Um, I think before we kind of get into kind of uh, today's environment and what's going on in metals, just um, tell me a little bit about around commodities. And obviously people think, well, commodities, we've been you know, trained to be like, oh, that's relatively simple. You think that, you know, the, the project two by two, you know, but commodities are not so simple. So maybe you can just give us a little bit of a snapshot about what makes kind of, let's say, metal spend or other commodity spend a little more complicated than people think about in terms of, um, in terms of these types of goods. That's a great question. Um, well, maybe I'll just start by saying uh, we do look at commodities outside of metals. So it's been interesting, even if you just track the producer price indexes for, you know, be it grains, chemicals, which are still sky high, lumber prices, you know, again, another commodity which have come down but are not at historical lows. They're still above, you know, in this kind of elevated phase. 
Um, you see a lot of nuance. I think when people think of commodities, they sometimes think that it's just some generic thing that's traded on an exchange. Oh, if I have a, uh, an aluminum item, it's an ingot. But none of our listeners and probably most of manufacturers are not actually buying any of what's actually traded on the exchange. They're buying the semi-finished version of that. And so it's what's happened with the pricing on those semi-finished parts and value-add materials that has gone completely haywire. And that's for all commodities. We see it in plastics too. You might have like the headline numbers, you know, the oil price as the headline, but you know, you might have some really wacky things going on in the ethylene market versus, versus the pro, you know, propylene market, for example. And that's what we're seeing in the metal side. And we're seeing um, in some cases, we are seeing high metal prices on the exchanges, but we're also seeing extraordinarily high value add processing costs also ensuing. And that's kind of the you know, I call that the black box and commodities. That's the stuff that's harder to track down in terms of what's happening in the market because it's not exchange traded. So um, the exchange, the exchanges to only get you so far. And then it's really understanding all the nuances when you dive a little more deeply. Yep. That, make, that makes a lot of sense. And that's an interesting point there, uh, Lisa, about just, it's not just looking at, you know, crude oil or energy costs as an input into steel or whatever, but also looking at the fact that there's kind of adjacent kind of commodities that might go along with, you know, the core commodity, as you said, some of these value added services and other types of things that you need to, you know, to consume that commodity or whatever. So that's, that's kind of an interesting um, perspective. Um, Bill, you had a question here on, on um, kind of the metals market in particular. I'll let you chime in on that one. Sure. You know, as we as we look at, at the metals market, there's been a, a lot of changes happening. And what, since we're talking about commodities, a lot of those commodities are uh, supply and demand related. So, you know, what what's out of balance right now that's driving driving the shortages and, and the uh, the prices, Lisa? What, what in your opinion, what's driving that uh, in terms of uh, supply and demand? That's a, that's a great question. That's another great question. I think we have hiccups on both sides of the equation on the supply side and on the demand side. So there's no doubt that the shutdowns and the shutdowns from 2020 were not coincided at the same time, right? China shut down before we completely shut down. And then there were hiccups in that supply chain from last year that haven't even worked their way through the bullwhip effect, right? A classic supply chain, mm -hmm. you know, a little bit of demand coming on stream with nobody having any inventory created this giant backlog. Um, on top of that, there were all sorts of supply constraints, real constraints that have happened in the last 18 months um, from, you know, uh, COVID outbreaks in certain like copper producing zones where, you know, less copper was out of the ground to, um, you know, governments trying to put a lid on expanding, you know, on, on rising prices. You see that both in Russia and China and trying to get prices low and also implement environmental regulations, for example, in China. And so you had like decreased mm -hmm. output. I mean, you still have high steel output in China, but there's a lot of those types of supply hiccups. Then you had demand coming on very strong toward the end of uh, the end of 2020 and much of this year. And strong demand with limited supply is going to create those bottlenecks. 
Then you layer that in with all of your logistics challenge from a global sourcing perspective and containers costing what was five, $6,000 a container, now 20 to $25,000 a container. Do you think about that for a second and you try to amortize the cost of that container over the goods in it? You, don't, you can't be shipping items that are a penny per each, right? Because you don't have as much um, to amortize that, that freight cost over whether you could in that scenario. But you get what I was saying that you can't always amortize the cost if you have a container full of low cost goods. Um, it becomes challenging. So I think it's a, it's a bit of both. Um, you also have, and I can comment particularly in the steel industry, it's the one I study, obviously a little bit harder, um, the metals markets in general, but in the steel industry, you have a situation where the mills very consciously and strategically turned on only the amount of lines that could run full out at full capacity and not a single additional line given this situation. And so that's kept prices elevated. Um, so, you know, I actually sit between two steel mills between ArcelorMittal and, and US Steel and, you know, only a couple of the lines in each plant are actually operational and the remaining five or six at each plant are not. And so that's creating, you know, some of this, you know, so it's a bit of the bullwhip effect. You've got demand hiccups, supply hiccups, and that just created this ginormous uh, situation, you know, that we find ourselves in and why we've seen inflation for a whole range of commodities outside of just metals. Yeah. Is labor, is labor an issue in the, uh, in the steel and metals market right now? Huge it is everywhere else. It's absolutely a huge issue. You're seeing manufacturers not be able to run at the capacity levels that they could based on their order books because they don't have the labor to match. Um, I do think that's a little bit less of an issue at the producer level, but it's certainly an issue at the service center and, and you know, further downstream, that is a huge issue. Um, and I don't know that we, I don't know when the end is coming to that. I'm, we're waiting. I mean, I'm hopeful that maybe this month we'll start seeing, you know, some of the unemployment benefits kind of, you know, disintegrate or evaporate or expire rather that, you know, that. Uh, companies will be able to make more of the strategic hires that they need. But I definitely see that as an issue more on our end user market. Um, the manufacturers themselves are struggling with that huge. Well, Lisa, I like your perspective around kind of looking at the broader supply chain. You're not just buying commodities on, you know, the spot market. And that's, you know, that's about it. You're really talking about looking at the entire supply chain, including logistics and because um, I mean that's ultimately how the, the goods need to flow and where the profits will 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 flow um, as well. But maybe just talk a little bit about um, just given that and um, you know you talked we talked last question was around kind of supply demand matching with kind of the existing network um, and then you talked a little bit about kind of capacity coming on and offline. Are there some things that you think are going to be kind of disruptive in terms of you know whether it's uh, you know, coal supply um, because of, you know, what, what's happening in terms of sustainability issues, whether it's in Australia or in China itself. And, you know, other, you know, and if, and if coal starts to dry up, if that does happen, what does that mean to the industry? Are there any other kind of just big disruptors? Could be geopolitical. I mean, China or whatever. Anything that you just see on the horizon that's kind of um, a real threat, just something to kind of keep your eye on and one of the many threat scenarios that are out there. Right. Let me pick the big ones. Um, well, I, I definitely see some significant. So the capacity issue is going to change pretty markedly 
for steel in particular. And I want to distinguish that from stainless steel, which is a different animal and has a different supply market. But I think the US, in the US market alone, I can say for sure there is additional steel capacity coming on during Q4 of this year. And the issue there will be, we know that the automotive industry has faced significantly higher prices for the 2022 calendar year. And what's interesting is we, we probably will see automotive companies buy as much as they can this year on their lower contracts full on out. So even though we see new supply coming on stream in Q4, I don't think it's actually gonna impact the market until later um, through you know, maybe the first half of next year. Um, so that's kind of a significant thing that we're looking at. That would be a big game changer for steel because steel has been you know, consistently high. I mean, if you look at the price charts of all of the base metals, you see an upward trend, but you see a little more jig jag and up and down, mm. allowing people to come in on price dips and sort of dollar cost average their purchases. Not so for steel. Steel has just been one, one way up. There's been no down. Um, so I see a big change in steel and that's not so much geopolitical. That's just capacity coming on stream. Um, but you have other markets where I see prolonged, sustained problems like stainless steel, for example. Um, and I know we've talked about this before, Pierre, just in terms of you know, product substitution, but the mills are getting really creative in how they're pricing their products. They really are steering people into the products that are the most profitable for them to produce and literally getting rid of everything else. And that's mm. causing another different kind of panic and uh, situation. So the stainless steel dynamics are really rough. Um, and we're actually seeing people still tapping into global sources of supply and $25,000 containers for the sheer need of getting metal. Yeah. Forget yeah. about price. Price is like irrelevant. Even they're going to pay more for the imports, but they, they have to get their material. And so it's a, it's a very different dynamic. And we don't see that situation resolving again till I would say definitely the back half of 2022. Um, so in terms of the macro issues you talked about, you know, climate change, the greening of, of the metals industry, I think you're seeing a lot on that. You're seeing the exchange traded metals, they're creating new contracts to get at some of the sustainability issues um, and the, you know, in the production of aluminum, be it aluminum, steel, et cetera. I mean, there are still today certain applications that require dirty steel making, you know, blast furnace steel making for everything that doesn't, it's going to go by way of uh, electric arc furnace, EAF production, same in China. Um, but there's still some of those capabilities that are only found from blast furnaces. So yes, they're going to try to green it as much as they can, but they're still going to have to use iron ore and coking coal and scrap and all the dirties that go into that. Um, for the longer term, I think that's still going to be here for, you know, some time. Yeah, there's no substitute for steel. So if you're if you're a buyer in this market and you're in the commodities and you have to look into the futures, you know what uh, what sort of risk are you willing to take, or what sort of risks are the companies willing to take in the in the commodity markets? It's a great question in terms of what risks people do take and don't. It might surprise you to know. I don't know if you know this, but most Metals buyers here in the United States do not hedge. That's a fact. In Europe, they hedge more. Um, in the UK in particular, there's a lot more hedging of commodities. So 
my argument is if you're buying on the spot market, you are 100% risk taking. That's what buying on the spot market is. You're going to pay whatever it is. Now, when prices are falling, it makes sense to only buy what you need on that spot market. And so in that case, that's actually a good risk reduction strategy to not be tied into um, you know, a long-term price. But if you look at how people did contracts for 2021, you know, the, the smart ones tried to lock in prices fixed in that rising market. Certainly the larger buyers did that. If, if you know that you're at sort of a historical world record high in steel prices today, does that same contracting strategy, you know, make sense? Or what do you do in this market? You might not want to lock in at today's prices yeah. um, in case prices do come off. And we think they will come off, at least for steel, I can speak, you know, for that. So I think everybody has to look at every commodity that they're buying and just understand where are we in the historical dynamics and are those dynamics still continuing that market to go up? I think steel is probably coming up to, more of a, a, a top in the market only because we have more capacity coming on stream. Um, and I think that's going to tip the scale. So again, we think like risk is risky. If you're buying spot market and have no strategy to manage the ups, that's uh, you're in a high risk environment. Um, if you know that the markets are coming down and right now, the only ones that are looking kind of weak are like tin, zinc, and lead look a little bit weaker. I wouldn't even quite use the word down, um, but let's say they're not going up, but I think aluminum, copper, nickel's a little sideways short-term, those things are all still going up. So you don't want to be you know, completely buying on the spot market in a rising market. So um, hopefully companies are doing a little bit more looking at hedging as an opportunity to, to take some risk out or lock in with suppliers, at least for a continuity of supply for next year. So Lisa, I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, not a lot of folks are doing kind of the financial hedging. And then you just mentioned kind of long-term agreements for the, the physical hedge, but then that question of knowing when to buy and how much, you know, when, and obviously we won't maybe get into even the, the, the issues around uh, lead times and allocations and all that kind of fun stuff. I mean, you can kind of go there too, if you want, because that is kind of the um, reality when you do a long-term agreement, you know, can you put any penalties in place or whatever, but Maybe just comment a little bit about how you help companies think about trends and you know and, and buying strategies and you know trying uh, and obviously we have a lot of decision support tools that you guys you know use but maybe just um, impart a little bit of a wisdom about just how how to think about some of those strategies. It's kind of, you know kind of just like in your own personal finances on how you'd want to get yourself in trouble in terms of making, you know, bad choices based on emotion or other things. Um, and any insights that you can share there? And then I want to kind of uh, ask you a little follow on question around AI and some of the advanced analytics and kind of having the, uh, the AI advisor give you some, in, you know, some inputs as to, <laughs> to what to do, but let's start with the basics, right. In terms of buying stress. Right. No, that's great. I mean, I love to answer that question because it, you know, starting in 2004, we started noticing that metals markets stopped playing or, or looking like their historical long-term averages. Um, and if you go back in time and look at steel in 2004, pre-2000, let's say 2002, you looked at steel prices, you'd find they were like 350 bucks a ton or 400 bucks a ton or, you know, some tight range. And, and the volatility was nothing. In 2004, when China really came onto the world stage, that's when we saw the, that volatility band get expanded. 
Um, and this is for a lot, all commodities, right? This isn't just metals. Of course, I'm speaking of metals, but it, it relates to all commodities that you know, a lot of the metals markets, a lot of other commodities are global commodities. The volatility band expanded and people had issues with meeting their budgets based on the way we've always done it. Um, and so we looked when we've spent a lot of time looking at what are the best ways to look at that volatility and make better decisions, given that we're kind of in this permanent wider volatility span than we've been historically. So I'll tell you what the industry uses. And this is across again, all commodities, just trying to, you know, it's not just a metals thing. It's super easy to want to default to looking at, and we did as well when we started looking at the fundamentals. Well, what's going on with supply? What's going on with demand? How are those numbers marrying out? What's sitting in the warehouse in the London metal exchange, Uh, you know, and fundamentals and invariably what would happen is I mean, I would hear this year over year, somebody would make a forecast looking at the fundamentals and the very next year they'd have to get up in front of an audience and say, yeah, we really got that one wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's not what we thought would happen. And that's just, I found myself like, boy, I do not want to be that person getting up on stage and having to apologize for my wildly wrong forecast. So we began looking at alternative methods for how can you look at metals markets um, a little more strategically and be more accurate. And that's when we started looking at what were the hedge funds doing and the trading houses doing in terms of looking at commodity markets. And if you look at that, they're all quantitative. They're looking at, you know, it's what's, it's technical analysis. They're looking at the price charts and the, and the notion, the fundamental notion there is, Everything that's going on within a particular market, both supply and demand, is factored into one thing, and that one thing is the price. So if you can understand the price action and the volume, the sentiment underneath those those moves, you'll be able to better understand where metal markets are going. So one of the educational things we always do is make sure everybody understands what kind of market are we in right now for all of the metals at, from a macro perspective, forget, I don't want to hear, I don't care about tin or nickel, just macro, what are metals? And, you know, and we quiz our, we actually quiz some of our clients just to make sure that they're, you know, understanding. And, you know, the answer is we're in a full on bull market, which doesn't mean we're not going to have dips and downward trends within that market, but we're in a full on bull market. And so when you're in a full on bull market, you take different behaviors than you would obviously in a a sideways or a crashing market or a falling market. So this year we're telling people for 2022, you better shore up supply. That's the most important thing. Price is second. And that's a, that's a shift for a lot of procurement professionals. Usually they're, you know, often trying to go after that. So we try to help people understand what are the macro markets doing and what is the macro trend and then give people a 30 day view into what's that, current trend. So sometimes you might be in a bull market, but aluminum, for example, it's not right now, it's actually going up, but you know, zinc looks a little weaker at the moment. looks like it's falling, but it's still in that bull market. So you're going to guide that buying strategy. You're not making any big macro buying decisions um, in, in a, you know, in a sideways market, but you're going to be watching it. You might have some dips of opportunity to buy forward when prices look a little bit weaker. And that's a nuance that that we kind of think about using technical analysis only. And it's almost like 
I don't care about the fundamentals. We do from a long-term perspective, but we don't from a short-term perspective. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. And it's, it's interesting kind of separating out the, the, the noise that you might get in, in the short-term versus kind of the overall um, bigger picture. And um, I do just, I have this one curiosity question, just in terms of all those, those hedge fund managers, they are actors in the market too. Is there any way that you have to kind of understand what they're actually doing and try to de-bias that or outguess them or don't even try, don't even try to do that. <laughs> don't even try to get into that kind of level of analysis. Well, to the extent that they are trading and they are creating volume on the exchanges, we're absolutely analyzing that. Yeah. So for example, if you see a rising price, but not much volume behind it, then I call it, you know, it's a bit of a one hit wonder um, or not a lot of sentiment behind it. So I think from a macro perspective, we absolutely look at those volumes and how those volumes may impact, you know, momentum and, and sentiment. Yeah, yeah I, I guess the only storm on the horizon would be, you know, what happens with uh, regulation and interest rates, what's, what's going to happen as we see this inflation start up now, I guess it's somewhere around 4% headed up to six. Right, right. I mean, we're all, I mean, again, we've been seeing commodity price inflation now since, you know, the beginning of May of 2020 and have, you know, kind of gone full out for that. Um you know, I don't know if that's going to have a dramatically new, different, more bullish kind of impact. Um, I, I tend to think not so much because I think there are some changes from a supply market perspective that will help balance some things out, just as we're seeing in lumber, right? And not all of the prices are sky high. If you look at the PPI for industrial goods in general, though, that still is at this sky high level. So I think in general, it's, so again, it's kind of like, maybe uh, micro market specific, right? In terms of which ones, but to the extent that, um, you know, commodities are priced in US dollars, those interest rates have a very big impact. Um, But right now I think there's just still so much more demand than there is supply that, you know, I still think that that's going to keep prices well supported, at least, you know, for the next few months. Yeah. Although we're always on the our eyes out for anything that crashes, and we've had a couple metals fall below some of our short term, you know, support levels, and that you know, then we look to see what's going to happen here, and then we've seen them bounce right back into the you know within the range. So um, not much of an impact, despite four, six, five percent inflation. And, you know, it's kind of an ongoing thing we'll have to keep track keep track of. Lisa, let me just ask you one kind of, it's a fairly basic question, but um, we've been talking about directly kind of buying commodities, but obviously for a lot of companies, that commodity spend is tier two spend, but it's a big, but it's big. And so maybe um, comment just a little bit on kind of the importance of should cost modeling and total cost modeling and um, and kind of how to be smart about that. And also, um, you know, um, I know that you, you, you guys have some tools in doing some of that, but just from a you know, strategy and kind of implementation standpoint, you know, just maybe weigh in a little bit on um, on, on cost modeling and, and, and should cost um, analysis with where commodities are in play. That's awesome. And I know, Pierre, this is like um, a, a concept that's near and dear to to our hearts, to your heart, as well as to mine. Um, Any procurement so professional. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so this is the example that I give, and I'm, you know, actually I'm just looking at, at a slide. Um, if you look at, let's say you're buying a 
we have clients that buy enclosures, metal enclosures. You can think of um, your cabling needs might go into some sort of aluminum enclosure, right? And you might know, well, you probably do know the base price for that material. And let's just use a number from last week, although this morning's number scared me. It was about $100 higher than this. So let's say that number is 2601, a metric ton. Um, and then you have the Midwest premium, again, also exchange traded, and that's about, give or take, $700 a ton. So if you kind of, you know, put those two numbers together, you're at what, 2700 and and 700, you're at, you know, $3,400 a ton. That number, you can get your arms around. But here's the number that people don't know about. But if you're actually buying an enclosure, it's made with 5052 aluminum coil, you're missing about $2,000 of a conversion cost premium. And again, we have a precise number. You're missing um, an import duty, for example, that might be $525 a ton. You're missing um, your freight on that at $265 a metric ton. Um, although that probably needs to be revisited with the new container rates. You know, so you're basically seeing actually about $6,000 a ton of that metal cost that's going into that enclosure. So having that visibility into the 6,000, you are you have so much more visibility into total cost when you get a more detailed should cost model than if you were stuck only with the LME and, uh, you know, the Midwest premium as your only, you know, visible prices. So that's kind of what we, we've done this Mm -hmm. for carbon steel. um, And most interestingly for stainless steel, which that's not been available. Of course, there is no stainless steel contract there's a nickel contract and we joke with stainless buyers because historically that surcharge piece, the nickel piece was always the most volatile piece of the stainless price. Mm -hmm. And now we have that exactly inverted that actually knowing what the nickel price is on the exchanges and the surcharges are actually the only predictable piece of the stainless price. Everything else is fluctuating. So having those should cost models, marrying that information together, again, gives you, gets you a whole lot further in that total product cost than just having the exchange traded models. So that's something we spend a lot of time focused on. And that's where I think we've delivered the most value to especially larger buyers that haven't had access to some of that nuanced, detailed, you know, cut to length extras, film extras, and other adders and extras that, you know, the hidden costs, if you will. Yeah, like you see in logistics, right? All those kind of hidden, all the accessorials and all and all that. And it's a it's a really interesting insight about. I always think about, you know, like like volume variability from different kind of demand channels and this bimodal supply chain and everything on the volume side. But on the pricing side, going the other way into supply markets is the same thing, right? The volatility of those different input costs are definitely going to have an impact, you know, on on the pricing side. It's not just a volumes game. So that's really exactly great, great exactly. Insight. I saw an article in the Wall Street Journal today that um, the most important part of a chip maker, uh, chip maker supply base now is the substrate um, manufacturers, um, where no one ever thought that that was even a factor in in the process. So with automotive running out of chips and everybody running out of chips, 
the substrate guys are getting quite a bit of attention. <laughs> exactly. Right. What, what's the line? You're only as strong as your weakest link, right? <laughs> right? And now everybody has the supply chain tools to kind of look further up and they're all realizing, wait a minute, that's the bottleneck, right? So they're trying to lock up the, the capacity with those guys. The one point that's really coming out clear is the supply chains are not uh, intact the way they were before. And, and I saw an, an example where uh, an a, um, ATV um, manufacturer of, of, of those vehicles uh, is waiting to see what parts they have for the day to see what they're going to make. They don't have, they're following a production schedule. They're looking at what can we make today from the parts that they have. And I, I like, I think it was Polaris, but it was in the wall street journal. And um, that's really weird when you're doing that. Yeah. That's not good. No. <laughs> it's like, it's like a scene out of Apollo 11 or whatever. Where they got the stuff on the table. It's like, all right, you got this and you got to make that, you know, good, good luck. Yeah. That's just, it's not a place you want to be. Here's uh, the rubber bands. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And the duct tape. Right. Yeah, um, fascinating talk. I'll tell you. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is great. So we could, we could pick your brain for a long time here, but um, anything that we haven't, uh, uh, you know, that, that we've missed in terms of the discussion, uh, Bill, on your side, at least or anything that you think we've uh, kind of glossed over that you want to, impart yeah, some yeah. wisdom and, and certainly definitely can you let us know too a little bit about um metal miner around just like newsletter if people are just interested in kind of getting the, the kind of insights from 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 you and team yeah i i just think that people really need to get a handle on on where where their commodities are at where they're going and they need to monitor it more more closely than they ever have before and they need to get with their um, their management to make sure they understand what risks are they taking, how much risk do you want to take, how much forward do you want to buy, uh, and you know, and keep a handle on what's happening in the economy. And I think that you help them do that every day. I appreciate that. Yeah, the only thing that I would add to, um, you know, we've added AI to our repertoire of tools, which I think is kind of fun, and I love hearing everybody's use cases for AI. For ours, I think the main case is uh, we want to create actually little tighter bands of where we think support and resistance are so that we can give more granular buying signals on a continuous daily basis, right? So sometimes people need to buy something every day. I mean, Bill, you mentioned the part about, you know, they decide every day what they're going to make. Well, I think the, the converse is true. They also have to decide what they're going to buy, right? Because not they may only they might be adjusting that purchase based on what they're actually making. So you know our goal with with AI was to not only automate and take work out of our own process of coming up with those support and resistance bands, those trading bands, but to give buying signals to buyers throughout the month. So instead of only waiting for the first of the month, they can actually come in at any time and understand when and how much should they buy or buy forward. Um, so making those more granular, you know, decisions, I think is, an, I think that's novel for the metals industry um, and historically is not something we've ever done. So that's kind of fun. We definitely do have a newsletter. We have um, a newsletter on our websites. You can sign up for, uh, there's one called Gunpowder and uh, we, we do a weekly update. We put some kind of unique free tidbit analyst commentary every week. So I invite everybody to take a look at that um, for what's going on in metals markets. Yeah, that's that's great. Thanks, thanks, Lisa. And um, I know we're we're out of time here, and I do recommend folks uh, check it out. Um, I am not quite the metalhead that uh, Lisa and team are, but it, it is actually um, very interesting read. So definitely recommend it. And uh, and uh, Bill, um, any, uh, any any closing thoughts here for you before we uh, before we sign off? 
just that the uh, the keep keep track of the supply markets because they're sure changing when when we shut down automotive and everything else because of chips and have to reconfigure all the machines. It's it's different. And thank you, Lisa, for help, for your insights. It's very very helpful to all the listeners out here. Yeah. Thanks, Bill and Pierre. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Th- thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks again. Um, and uh, look forward to see you uh, in October. Thanks again, Lisa. Appreciate it. Okay.